Some of us have to wind our way through uncertainty and doubt before we hopefully set upon the work that will bring us joy and fulfillment. Others see it right from the start. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The first jobs, obstacles overcome, the doubt, plan Bs, and the passion to push forward. Jonathan Eig had a pretty good idea what he wanted to do early on, growing up in Rockland County, New York, just north of New York City. He was set on a life in journalism, and he's done it, working at newspapers, magazines, and now the author of numerous acclaimed books. He's written about several American icons, primarily in the sports world, Lou Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali. His latest is King, A Life, the first biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in some 30 years. Jonathan, you've written about Martin Luther King Jr., you've written about Muhammad Ali, you've written about Lou Gehrig. These are no hyperbole necessary here. These are icons. Is there a certain pressure as a writer when you're writing history and it's about people that are integral to American history? Well, there's pressure when you're writing about anybody. And as a longtime journalist, you know that you have a responsibility to get it right and you've got a responsibility. You're taking someone's story in your hands. You're taking their lives in your hand when you, when you talk about a biography. And, and there's almost no way to justify that morally and ethically, right? Like, who am I to tell Lou Gehrig's life story? Even more audacious, who am I to tell Martin Luther King's life story? So there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of, uh, it just requires, you know, dedication to a lot of hard work and making every effort not to screw it up too bad. How about people about whom much has been written? Well, that too. And you don't do it. I wouldn't undertake it unless I felt like there was something new that I could contribute or that their story had been um, somehow misunderstood and in need of an update. So that's something I assess every time I think of a possible subject for a biography. I do. I run this checklist. You know, has it been done and has it been done well recently? If the answer is yes, then I'm and I dismiss it. I won't do it. Is there something new to say? Is there new material to work with? Are there people around who can provide me new insights? If the answer is uh, yes, then then I'm still interested. And um, and then the question is, is it still relevant? Do people care about it today? Before we get to your path and your journey to doing what you do. Uh, what was the origin of the King story for you and writing the King biography? Did someone come to you or did you find out something that, oh, there's, there's, there's new material out there. This is something I might want to investigate. Well, it was really the epiphany that I was meeting people who knew Martin Luther King as I was working on my Muhammad Ali book, because I wanted to ask a few people if they knew about the relationship between Muhammad Ali and MLK. So there were people who knew them both and who knew about their encounters. So people like Andrew Young and Dick Gregory. Um, and as I was talking to them, I realized I was really interested in learning more about King. And I, I just hung around and, and asked them a few more questions. You know, what was he like? What was it like to hang around him? Because, you know, we tend to think of him as ancient history. And if, especially if you ask, you know, younger people about King, they, they treat him like he's, you know, George Washington or something, that he, he lived long ago in a land they cannot imagine. Uh, but here were people who knew him and knew him well. So once I started down that road, I realized there must be dozens, if not scores of people, hundreds of people perhaps still alive who knew him. And wow, I, I just want to meet them. I want to go talk to them. And, and, and then I realized that there hadn't been a biography of King in a long time, 35 years at that point. And, um, and that, that his, his 
story had been lost in a lot of ways. We've we've turned him into a mythological figure and forgotten about the man. So that's when I really got off and running. Maybe pressure is the wrong word, but when you start uh, looking at that mythological figure and turn him into flesh and blood, do you ever find that you get resistance from people? Like, do you really want to do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, resistance from um, even my agent. Like, are you sure you want to take this chance of being the guy who, uh, you know, who damages the image of Martin Luther King, but I didn't see it as damaging at all. Um, I thought that if, if we humanized him and we showed his flaws, he'd be an even greater hero that people would admire him and love him even more because they could relate to him. And, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't do us any good to turn our heroes into, into superheroes, into mythological figures. Um, they, they, they can't, you can't really aspire to, to be like Martin Luther King. If, if you think you have to be perfect, cause none of us are perfect. And one of the really, sweet reward so far of this book is that I think I was right. I think people are really embracing the, the real king. They don't need that perfect king that, that the, you, they got you know in kindergarten in, in, in their storybook lessons. I know from my own uh, journalism experience, there are days where you're speaking to someone or spending a day with someone that the notion of calling it work is, is almost comical. Um, can you tell me a couple of those uh, moments during the course of researching this book when you're in a place and you're already you've already done this for quite some time. Uh, so you're not new to the notion of being in someone's home or being around someone, a person, an historic person. And and you're right. There's a responsibility in telling their story as they tell the story of someone else. A couple of moments during this process where you kind of step back and said, wow. I'm not going to forget oh, man. this. There were so many. Uh, this book was such a great gift. Um, you know, I spent three, four hours in the home of Harry Belafonte. This is now six years ago. Um, and, and he would have just stayed all day. Um, I was the one who had to leave because I had another appointment. And at <laughs> one point, you know, he, um, he showed me on the wall that he had this um, handwritten draft of a, of a speech that King made about um, Vietnam, one of the, his earliest anti-Vietnam speeches. It was, it was hanging on his wall. Belafonte said he'd taken it out of the garbage can because King had thrown it away. He, he, was, he wrote it in, in Belafonte's apartment. And I said, can we take it off the wall? And, or can I take pictures of it? And he said, yeah, just take it off the wall. And, and I said, I'm not touching that thing. That's worth, that's worth millions of dollars. <laughs> he said, he grabbed one and he said, you take the other end. And we took it off the wall, put it down by the window and took pictures. Um, but, you know, there were there were so many others who were not famous, who where the experience was just as rewarding. Uh, June Dobbs Butts uh, was King's childhood friend, played Monopoly with him when they were, you know, 11 years old. His sister dated King in high school. Uh, June's best friend was engaged to marry Martin Luther King uh, when they were, you know, um, uh, in their early 20s. And and I just I, I had so much fun visiting with her. She was in a nursing home outside of Atlanta. And then I would call her, you know, every week for, for months, just so that we had a little, just a regular appointment to catch up. And, and she would tell me the same joke about, about Martin Luther King. She's the only one who I, I never really heard. You don't hear a lot of like body jokes about Martin Luther King. And she told me one that, and she would tell it to me every time I called her as if, as if she'd forgotten that she'd called, that she'd already told it to me. And I just listened to it every time. And I'm not going to tell you the joke. Growing up, was there a love of reading this type of work, of reading biography? Not really. I only read sports biographies as a kid, you know, and even as into uh, even into young adulthood, um, I was not a giant um, consumer of the biography. Um, but I would say that the the biography that really turned me into a biographer was Seabiscuit by Laura Hillenbrand. That's the one where I realized, oh, maybe I could do this. Like I saw and by then I'd been a journalist for a long time. 
and um, a magazine writer. And I sort of, in reading Seabiscuit, I sort of pictured how one might be able to write a biography. And, and sports was a great w road in for me because uh, writing a sports biography is in some ways simpler than writing a you know, political biography because um, there's games to follow, there's seasons, there's, there's you know, in the case of Hillenbrand, there's horse races, and it just gives you a really natural structure to follow. And of course, biography is chronological. Uh, it's really the only way to do it. So that also provides a roadmap for the first time biographer. Tell me about the home that you grew up in, and not, actually not too far from where I grew up. You grew up in Rockland County. I grew up in Orange County, New York. What was the home like and the notion of writers? Did writers play a particular role in that home? No, not at all. We didn't even really have books in the house. We we went to the Finkelstein Memorial Library and, and loaded up on books, and I would just take out often like the uh, the, the maximum number of books and records um, and, and just load up my arms. Um, really to the point where I couldn't carry anymore. But, you know, my, my dad was an accountant working out of the house, working out of the basement, um, doing the books for small businesses in Rockland County. My mom was a PTA mom, very active, and later was on the state board of the PTA. So I saw, you know, her commitment to activism. Um, and I was really blessed to have both parents home and, and attending every one of my Little League games. But there was no sense of... Um, you know, there was, there was, there was, I had no, you know, role models as a writer. I, I never knew a writer uh, until I went to college. I'd never met anybody who, who had written a book um, and, and was thrilled to discover that, wow, some of these professors have written books. That's the coolest thing ever. I would go to the library and take out their books, even if they were, you know, obscure tomes. Um, so becoming a writer was never even remotely on my radar. I would have needed a telescope to try to like see a writer from where I was living. Was there a sense of what was on your radar as you were growing up? Um, sports. I, I was a huge sports fan. And, um, you know, when I realized I was never going to be a the center fielder for the Yankees, I shifted to wanting to be a musician. Uh, I was a pretty serious trumpet player for a little while. When I uh, got into high school, I realized I wasn't quite good enough to, to make it. Um, and, and that's when I started to get the writing bug. And I went to work for my hometown paper, the Rockland County Journal News, when I was 16 years old, um, working in the sports department, just typing in agate as they called it you know the uh, the box scores from high school games and eventually they let me go out and cover some of those high school sporting events and um and then i began pushing to see if i could cover stuff that wasn't on the sports section you know they let me do some local town council meetings and and uh cover some some you know fourth of july uh, festivals things that the other reporters didn't want to cover uh, so i was uh I, I fell in love with newspapers at that point and uh, and i'm still in love with newspapers I've talked to some writers and reporters who talk about, oh, as soon as I smelled the the ink walking into the the newsroom, and and that's not, I'm not, I might sound sarcastic, but I'm not being judgmental about that. They're they're absolutely almost religious about that experience. Is there a notion early on at that Rockland County paper of, oh, this is, I think we got something here. I I think I absolutely knew it and felt it in my bones that this is what I wanted to do, and I wrote my application to Northwestern, um, the only college I applied to, um, saying that the, the people here are miserable at this newspaper. They're all underpaid. I can still remember this. They're underpaid. Um, they're, 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 they're still living, you know, in some of the cases with their parents. Um, all they do is complain about everything. And this is what I want to do. I, I, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, what did you make of that? You know, these books are your observations of people and of interview, you know, of, uh, when you interview people, of course, there are observations of people. 
But as a 16, 17 year old, this notion of everybody's complaining, <laughs> everybody hates it, but they love it. What, what did you make? Well, I think of that? there were two things. One on the on the on the grander sense, there was a, there was a feeling in the air at the time that journalism was going to change the world. Journalism was um, giving voice to the voiceless. And this was the era of Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein. And there was a real feeling that you could make an impact as a writer. At the same time, it really appealed to me because I was a shy, short, pudgy, insecure kid. And with a notebook in my hand, I had I had this ability to, it's like, you know, it was like uh, a shield. I could go anywhere. I could talk to anybody. Um, I could go in and confront the principal of my school who I would, you know, put my head down if I passed in the halls. But with my little <laughs> reporter's notebook, uh, my blue and white, you know, rectangular spiral bound reporter's notebook, I could confront anybody. I could even talk to girls, <laughs> you know, and, and that to this, to this day feels like a superpower. I can call, you know, Harry Belafonte. I can call Andrew Young and Jesse Jackson and, 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 and invite myself over and, and ask them anything I want to ask. Why? Just because I own a spiral bound reporter's notebook. That's awesome. <laughs> it's like the ultimate, especially for someone who's shy, same story here. You know, it's the ultimate get out of jail, uh, you know, free card. Uh, is there a first example or one of the first examples of that as you're working for the paper in Rockland County of, I can't believe this guy's talking to me, or I, I can't believe the power of having this little notebook in my hand. Yeah, I mean, I was 17 years old and they sent me to cover like the Israeli ambassador who was speaking at some synagogue in Rockland County. Like, I'm 17. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And then, you know, two years later, I get an internship <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm now, I'm in college and this is summer of my, between my sophomore and junior years. And I'm working out of the Washington Bureau for the L.A. Times. And they send me to the White House for you know a press conference with Ronald Reagan. I'm like, come on. This is ridiculous. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm literally like asking the, the security guards, the janitors, like, where should I be going? Where should I be standing? Am I actually allowed to ask questions? You know, it's it's absurd that, I, that I'm getting these kinds of opportunities. And even now, I feel the same way. You know, the fact that I can call friends of Martin Luther King's and say, will you talk to me? Um, I know that, you know, I have some more credentials now, but still feels the same way. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. Do you recall a conversation at home either before you go off to college or while you're in college of, Hey folks, this is what I'm going to do. No, I think my parents were always just thrilled and excited. You know, they were uh, the children of immigrants. My, my parents were the first generation born in this country and they, uh, just thought I was having the greatest adventure and, and they loved it and supported it all the way. And it was not something they ever could have imagined, but they were big newspaper readers. You know, my, my parents growing up and they, my, my parents are from Brooklyn and Queens. They probably had, you know, three or four newspapers come into the house every day. And they still had, you know, three newspapers every morning, uh, the times, the, the, uh, the journal and the, um, and the local paper, the Rockland journal news delivered. Um, so, uh, I think they were just excited and, and enjoying the ride along with me. So you didn't you didn't get any dose of okay, we'll let him uh, let him enjoy this thing now, and but later on when he gets serious, he's going to do. X, no, a y, lot of my Z. friends growing up felt pressure from their parents to be doctors or lawyers, and that's also common for the, like the second generation of Americans. Um, you know, I, I had friends who literally were told they had no choice. It was you your your, your choices were between doctor and lawyer, and and they felt enormous. <laughs> anger and frustration over that. And I never got that from my parents. In fact, my dad told me once that he was disappointed that I became a journalist because he really thought I was meant to be a trumpet player. And I thought, dad, that's even less money. 
<laughs> than I'm making as a journalist. <laughs> and and you know, for I was shocked that that he wasn't more worried about the income. But good, I, you know, I gotta love him for that. Wow, the rare child of an immigrant who says to his next generation, yeah, "Don't worry about uh, making money. Well, you should have been. Yeah, don't worry about it. That's right. Go be go be, go a be an artist. You're, that's, you know, that's that's nuts. You know." But I got that's beautiful. Well, what do you think that what do you think that was about? I have no idea. My 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 parents are always um, they weren't hippies. You know, they, they could have been They're at the right age. Um, they're they're pretty, con, you know, much conformists. They you know, they bought the house in the suburbs mm-hmm. and they, you know, sent their kids to public schools and did all the right things. But um, I think that there was always a streak of of um, independence that they didn't feel like they had to compete and have the nicest car, or the nicest lawn. And they didn't care if their kids, you know, went out and, you know, became doctors and lawyers just to impress the neighbors. That just wasn't their thing. They just wanted us to be happy. And, and, and um, that was a great message to get. God bless yeah. them. Uh, so you go off to Northwestern and are you like kind of living the dream, living the journalism dream there in terms of college paper stuff you're studying or are there bumps along the yeah, way? Yeah, I majored in journalism. I showed up day one at this at the school paper, the Daily Northwestern, and pretty much spent every day of my uh, of my of my college career there. You know, I, I scheduled all my classes for the morning for four years, so I could be at the Daily um, in the afternoon and into the evening. And the Daily news, you know, that was my fraternity. Basically, the, the my fellow reporters at the Daily Northwestern became my best friends, and you know, people I partied with on the weekends, and the people who I'm still close friends with today. Um, so yeah, I was just, you know, living and breathing journalism and, you know, I had to take some other classes and I was very lucky that I fell in with, um, um, the black history department and found a mentor in Leon Forrest, who was the head of the black studies department, because I had to take, you know, some other classes besides journalism. So I, I settled, I found a lot of, um, African-American history, African-American literature classes that I fell in love with. I've talked to many people who worked at their college papers and, and, Many of them describe it almost like a religious experience, like regardless of what their major was. And obviously your major is connected to being on a college paper. But even if they're majoring something else, they, they talk about that's what they really were majoring in in the college newspaper. Yeah. Uh, are there lessons from then that you still apply today? Yeah, there's no question about it. And, and you know, a lot of people debate whether it's worthwhile majoring in journalism because you could just work at your school paper and then you can, you know, back then you could easily get a job at a newspaper and learn it that way. And I think there's some validity to that. You know, maybe my time would have been better spent um, taking English classes and history classes and just getting my journalism from the school paper. But nevertheless, um, I just couldn't get enough. So I wanted everything. I wanted the journalism classes, the journalism major, the, the, the school paper. I just wanted you know, to, to gobble it all up. I had an endless appetite for this. And I think part of it is that you, you feel like you're in this community and you're measuring yourself. You're learning whether you're really good enough to do this because these are the other people who are you know, absolutely fired up about this and, 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 and the best at the, at the school in this. And and, and so there's a sense of competition, but there's also this sense of brotherhood that you're, you know, you're doing something that's supposed to be for adults. You're making your own newspaper with no adult um, supervision at all, as long, unless, you know, unless you get sued or something. You know, you have this responsibility to do it every day. It's, it's hard. You, you know, the paper came out, you know, five days a week and somebody had to be there to put it out every day. And um, it was just, you know, it's like a bonding experience that, that, as I said, you know, those, a lot of those people are still my friends today because we went through that together. Is there a moment or a story at the college paper where it really dawns on you? Wow. I do have this power 
and I need to take this seriously because it can not go off the rails, but it can end up wrong, even if my intention was not wrong. Wow. You know, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. Great question. Um, I wrote a story once. Um, I was covering the campus administration and some guy, I can't remember his position. He was high up in the administration, started leaking me documents that I wasn't supposed to have and telling me that there was a lot of skullduggery within the, the high ranking of high ranks of the administration. And I printed this story and it turned out he was manic depressive and that he was having a manic uh. episode. And some of the stuff he had released me was true, but some of the stuff he was telling me was uh, a product of his um, manic episode and was not true. And I had to write, you know, a huge apology. And I'd never had any encounter. Again, I was whatever, 19 years old. I had never had any encounter with with mental health issues like that before. Didn't even know what manic depressive uh, conditions were like. Wouldn't have recognized it uh, at all. But you know, he he later came out came and and, and told us what what had been going on. And and I had to do a huge apology, and um, and write about it, and and go talk to the members of the administration. They were all very sympathetic um, because there was no way for me to have known what this what this guy was going through. But that was a big wake up call. And it, it does remind you that, you know, you've got an awesome responsibility when you put something in print. Wow. What a story. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. As you are coming out of Northwestern, are you full bore? This is what I'm going to do. Or is there any part of you that thinks, well, I know that I'm going into a bit of an unorthodox field. If for whatever reason I doesn't doesn't work out. Here's my plan B. <laughs> no, I was I had the blinders on. Like some people said, why don't you take a few months off and go travel Europe before you start your job? No, I gotta go. Gotta get started. Gotta get that first job. Gotta start writing newspaper stories. I just wanted to go, go, go. Like I wish that I had been a little bit <laughs> more sedate. <laughs> I wish that I had enjoyed myself a little more. Um, but I just wanted to write as many newspaper stories as I could and 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 get my name in the paper and and work my way up to the New York Times. That's that was I was just laser focused. And how long is it between graduation and your first job out in the world? Well, like three days. <laughs> I took a weekend. <laughs> wow, that long, yeah. huh? So this is excruciating. You know, this notion of people who are trying to get their first job and it's not working out is excruciating. Three no, back days. then, That's back then, awesome. newspaper jobs were abundant. Um, every town had had these giant newspaper staffs. They had, they were establishing suburban bureaus. So, um, you know, I applied to something like sixty newspapers and and got three or four offers. You know, right out of the bat, and um, and and chose New Orleans Times Picayune uh, because it was the biggest city that offered me a job and and a, and a, a pretty good you know up and coming newspaper at the time. And they put me out in the West Bank Bureau, which is a town of Gret called Gretna. And I was covering these little towns, Gretna, Marrero, West Wego, Jean Lafitte, little many of them Cajun towns, um, working class towns that, um, you know, a good 10 miles, 15 miles outside of New Orleans. And it, I, I just couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't wait to get started. So as you get there, is there an immediate sense of... Uh... Oh, we're not in we're not in New York State anymore, uh, and 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 is that a, a a difficulty or is that a wow? I'm 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 like a painter with a totally clean canvas. I'm going to learn about a different part of the country. How great is that? Yeah, there was never a moment where I thought that my little notebook would fail me. You know, like I could go anywhere, and and I had never been anywhere. I had never been out of the country. I had never been to you know, out West, I had, uh, I, I, I had an internship in San Jose right before I, I went to New Orleans. Um, but I was really, um, fairly sheltered and to go down there and, and to, 
not only report on New Orleans, but to write, report on these tiny little southern communities, these Cajun communities, these these you know shrimping communities where everybody was you know had their 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 trawling nets hanging up in the yards of their houses in front of their houses. That was you know might as well have been like uh, you know Asia or, or Africa to me. Like I had never been anywhere like this, um, and and it was all just new and exciting, and I felt like I'm going to find endless cool stories here. And I never once worried about whether people were going to, how they were going to receive this, you know, this, this little, this weird little Jewish guy from the North, from New York. At that point or in those early years, how long did you stay in New Orleans or at that? I was at the time speaking in for about three and a half, four years. So at that point, is it, Oh, this is it. Um, I mean, I, I dreamed about doing this and, and now I'm doing it. Or are there any elements of doubt in, in those early years? I, it absolutely confirmed for me that I love newspapers. I wanted to do it for the rest of my life, and I wanted to get out of New Orleans uh, and get to a bigger paper. You know, my I was ambitious. I wanted to get to the New York Times, um, or at least the uh, you know the Washington Post or the Daily News, um, Chicago Tribune, maybe. But I was really focused on just getting the biggest and best newspaper job that I could and staying in New Orleans just long enough, even though I loved it there and made great friends and it's a fantastic news town. I was still feeling like, you know, I've got to keep on the career path that gets me to, uh, to the, to the big, the big paper. And where was the next, next step? up was the Dallas morning news after, you know, my attempts to get to New York and Chicago and DC failed. I thought, well, Dallas is a, is a bigger city. And uh, it, at the time that newspaper was winning Pulitzers, it was really an exciting newsroom. And there was there were two newspapers in town. So it was a competitive uh, news environment, which was exciting too. I didn't really love Dallas that much, but I loved the newspaper. And, uh, and again, like I'm just trying to, I figured, okay, well, I can't get straight from New Orleans to the Times. I'll have to go you know, uh, New Orleans, Dallas, New York Times. And that, that became my, my new plan. And, and during those early years, are there times, is, is that, that path still clear? Or are there times where you maybe started to think, oh, okay, if I end up here and this is where I'm going to be, okay, I, I made my peace with that and it's a good paper and I'm doing the work that I love. Nope, I was not, I was not settling in <laughs> Dallas. I was really still determined that I was going to get to a you know, bigger market and a bigger paper, even though Dallas was a great paper. Um, but uh, so I kept applying to jobs. You know, I applied to the Wall Street Journal. I applied to the New York Times, and and I would go and visit people I knew there and meet with editors. But um, jobs just didn't come. Uh, and and then I I met a girl, and she uh, was a, a reporter also, and she moved to Chicago to go to grad school. So I moved to Chicago without a job, and and that's that was the the important next step because then I forced myself just to freelance for a while and um, learned a lot from that experience of freelancing and eventually got hired on at Chicago magazine. And then the wall street journal and the Chicago bureau hired me. So that um, changed the course of my path. And then once we, once I married that girl and stayed in Chicago, um, I lost my ambition to get to New York. You said you learned things during that period of freelancing. What did you learn? The big thing about freelancing is that you have to be a salesman and you have to think about what stories are going to have an audience and what stories are, you know, you're, you're always as a newspaper reporter, you're always thinking about marketing a little bit. What's going to get me on the front page, but it's not as much pressure because you're getting a paycheck every week, regardless of whether you make the front page or not. And sometimes your job is really just to, you know, focus on local issues and, and, and it's not as likely to get on the front page and they don't care. 
But when you're freelancing, everything has to be uh, a sales pitch. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to find the best stories for the biggest market, and then you're having to learn how to sell them to editors who are not always eager to, 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 to pick up the phone. Um, and this is often, you know, pre-email. So um, mm-hmm. you really learn to think like, like a salesman in a way. And, and I think that's really useful. It turned out to be really useful in writing books because um, pitching a book is, um, is a business proposition. You know, you're saying to the publishing world, I've got a book that I think is going to sell. I've got an idea that I think there's an audience for. So just making that little bit of a, of a tweak in my approach to journalism was really helpful, I think. Is the transition to doing books, was it kind of happenstance or is it kind of bubbling in the back of you like, okay, I've done newspapers, I've done magazines for a while now. There's something else out there that I want to do. Was it your intention or was it kind of suggested to you? There were a couple of moments where I was, first of all, you know, when you write a magazine story that's seven, 8,000 words long, you begin to feel like, wow, if I can do that, maybe I could write a chapter in a book. And if I could write a chapter in a book, uh, I could string together 10 or 20 of those chapters. Maybe there's, maybe I'm capable of writing a book, but it's, I'm still not sure uh, whether I have the tools yet to do it. But Every once in a while, a story would come along that I thought this could be a book. Like I, I love this story enough that I would spend you know years working on it. And I remember one of the first ones uh, was a little profile I wrote for Esquire magazine on the jazz musician Tom Harrell. And this connects back to what I said earlier about mental health. He was schizophrenic and couldn't really function in many ways except when he was playing the trumpet. You know, he had a very difficult time communicating. He couldn't really get to and from his gigs uh, without the help of his wife. But when he picked up his trumpet unbelievably beautiful things happened. And I wrote this profile about him for Esquire. And um, I was approached about doing a book on Tom. And, and actually, at, at some point, Brad Pitt um, expressed interest in um, in playing uh, Tom Harold in a movie. He wanted to, you know, option my, my magazine story or my book and turn it into a movie. And none of that ever happened because Tom um, was hard enough for him just to, you know, get through um, his his music career, but to have me following him around all the time and asking him questions was just more than he could handle. So I never, never wrote that book. But that was the first time that I began to think that maybe, maybe it was possible that I could apply my, my, my journalism skills to writing books. And was there a confidence there that uh, those skills could translate? Or yeah, there, are there moments like... when you're going into the first one of, all right, now I, now I've got like the deal to write the first one. Now I got to write those 16 other chapters. Yeah, when I started, so I had the idea to do a Lou Gehrig biography, uh, as I mentioned earlier, inspired in part by Seabiscuit. And I I spent a year writing a proposal, a book proposal, and was still somewhat shocked to actually get an offer from Simon & Schuster to write the book. And and then I said, oh, now I actually got to figure out how to do this. Uh, (laughs) We're talking about Simon & Schuster here. A rumor has it they've put out a book or two through the years. Yeah, pretty good publishing company and a great editor in Bob Bender and, um, you know, one of the legends in the publishing world. And um, they gave me money. I I put that money in the bank and now, okay, I guess I got to figure out how to write a book. (laughs) And I knew how to research. I knew how to write. um, um, And I loved that part. And I figured I'll just have to figure it out as I go along. And that's what I did. You know, I started writing a chapter or two and then realized, no, that doesn't work. well, let's try again. You say that doesn't work. How would you mean? What What would you recognize in it that's, uh, that's not going to work? Well, I was treating chapters as if they were magazine stories. 
And, you know, magazine stories have a certain structure to them. There's a usually like a, you know, an introduction. And then there's a sort of a, what we call in the business, a nut graph, you know, the thesis statement followed by, you know, I would say three or four distinct sections, you know, background, um, character development, action, conclusion, and, and, um, and, and that doesn't work. You know, you've got to think, um, it's almost like writing a symphony versus writing a song. You've just got to change your, your, your view, your scope, and have in mind that these chapters are building to something and it's just a longer arc. And I had to just write the chapters to figure that out. I had to, I'd say I hit about chapter 10 when I, when I realized, okay, now I know what I'm doing. I had to go back and rewrite, you know, one through nine, but I began to just feel like I was getting the rhythm of it at a certain point. And when I go back and read, I, I can't go back and read the whole book now. I can't read any of my books, but when I go back and thumb through my first book, I still see where I um, was falling back on some of my old journalist habits, um, writing this as if, as if I would, as if it were a magazine story, but I, I, I did a pretty good job of figuring it out, um, as I went along. And it's, it's, it's just a matter of, you know, trying and failing. Why can't you go back and read the stuff you've written? Oh, because it could always be better. Um, you know, even today, you know, just earlier this week, someone asked me to read the, the, the last page of, of my Martin Luther King book. And I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't stand to do it. I did it. I got through it, but I couldn't stand to do it because it could always be better. And I, as, especially when you read it out loud, you hear, and I, I always read my work out loud, you know, as at, when I finish a chapter to hear where the biggest flaws are, where it's least comfortable. Cause if it doesn't sound good coming out of your mouth, then it's not going to sound good in the reader's head. When I read it now and it's published, I just wish that I could go back and fix it a little bit one more time, always, every time. The great Robert Caro has told me in interviews that he always knows the last line of his books before he starts writing them. And those books are, are rather lengthy books. Any notion of that for the books you've written? Absolutely not. Um, but I will say that I've been really blessed, at least with a few of them, to just feel it. Like as I'm coming, as there are certain chapters that I feel really emotional as I'm writing that like, I, I can hear the Indiana Jones theme song in my head mm -hmm. as I'm writing it. When that happens, like I'm in a groove and it's always the Indiana Jones theme song. Um, and when I got to the end of my King book, I was feeling it and I just typed amen at the, at the last word. And I said, whoa, is that, that, can I stick, can I really stick an amen at the end of this chapter? <laughs> but I was feeling it and I left it there and my editor liked it and it's there. So I don't, I don't think I've ever known in advance what the ending was going to be. But if I'm lucky, I feel it when I get there. Are there any elements of the home that you grew up in and lessons learned from being in that home and the early experiences at the Rockland County newspaper? And even in, we've talked about college previously, but those really early years, can you, can you draw a thread to the work that you continue to do today and say there's a connection between the lessons I learned as a, as a kid and as a young man, both personally and professionally, and it affects the work I do today tangibly. Wow. But you're, you're asking so many good questions that I've never heard before. Uh, the, you know, I feel like my parents are two of the least judgmental people you will ever meet. They didn't seem to have any prejudices. I don't mean just, you know, race, religion. I just mean that like, Everybody has something worthwhile to say. We as kids felt like our voices were heard. 
Um, and I feel like that sense of like nobody was better than anybody else. You know, we came from a fairly modest, mod- fairly modest household. I feel like that prepared me really well uh, to be a journalist and to go into people's homes and humbly ask them questions and, and want to learn from them, want to understand them better, want to tell their stories. I, I feel like even though, again, as I said earlier, they weren't writers, they weren't writerly, they weren't people who um, really knew anything about the world of journalism or, or publishing, but they made me curious and they made me open-minded and they made me feel like everybody's story had equal value. And, and, and that really, I think, prepared me well to be a journalist. And that applies both when you're spending the day with Harry Belafonte or spending the day with a a family in Cajun country, half an hour outside of New Orleans. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, I'm curious to learn from other people. I feel like I'm the least interesting person on earth. And um, if I have become interesting at all, it's because I've met so many interesting people. Jonathan Eig. His latest book is the critically acclaimed new biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called King, A Life. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.